You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Where's Papa going with that axe? Said Fern to her mother as they were setting the table for breakfast. Out to the hog house, replied Mrs. Arable. Some pigs were born last night. I don't see why he needs an axe, continued Fern, who was only eight. Well, said her mother, one of the pigs is a runt. It's very small and weak, and it will never amount to anything. So your father has decided to do away with it. Do away with it? You mean kill it? Shrieked Fern. Just because it's smaller than the others? So begins the beloved tale of a particular porcine and an exceptional arachnid, Charlotte's Web. My name's Moxie, and this is your Brain on Facts. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Today we're going hog-wild on that amazing organic machine that converts vegetables into bacon. Let's piggyback on the success of our all-goat episode number 35, make a silk purse of a podcast out of a sow's ear of research notes, go whole hog, and talk about pigs. You're a good group, so I know I'm not going to be casting pearls before swine. And a quick thank you to my niece Savannah for helping me with the intro, I promise The Science with Savannah podcast and YouTube channel will be coming back soon. Pigs have been with us for a long time, first being domesticated in Asia over 9,000 years ago. These omnivores are one of the oldest domesticated animals, behind only dogs and goats. They moved through the Near East and eventually to Europe, where they made their biggest leap of all when Spain introduced them to the Americas on Columbus's second voyage. The Spanish explorers brought pigs with them to eat on their long voyage, and left many behind in the New World, where no large domesticated animals had existed before. Hernando de Soto, who explored what is today the southeastern United States, is often called the father of America's pork industry, as he brought 200 pigs with him on his expedition. Those first pigs are the ancestors of both the farmed pigs and the feral pigs, or wild boar, that cause an estimated 1.5 billion, with a B, dollars of damage every year. Their rooting for food can tear up farmland and recreational areas. They trample crops, push out other wildlife, and can carry diseases that spread to domesticated animals. Every continent has some population of pigs except Antarctica. The pig is perfectly suited to domestication. Pigs are very fertile. Sows can give birth to 15 piglets a year, which mature in as little as six months. Pigs are three times more efficient at converting plant material to meat than cows are. Because they're omnivores, they're handy on family farms as nature's garbage disposal. They aren't indiscriminate eaters, though. I can tell you from my experience in fattening my own pigs while I was raising goats, they can really be quite picky. Once my Tamworth pigs, Hamish and Spamantha, got used to having fresh milk poured over their food, they wouldn't eat without it. Pigs are also useful as self-propelled plows. Give a few pigs access to a field that needs turning over, 
and they'll get the ground properly churned up in their search for nuts and roots. If you're lucky, they'll find a spring to make themselves a waller of mud to roll in. The mud is strategic to keep them cool because they don't have sweat glands, and it creates a barrier between their skin and the sun and biting insects. Pigs are actually quite clean. They're the only livestock I've met who stops eating and moves away from their food to have a poo. Traditionally, pigs were classified as one of two types, lard and bacon or meat. Compact and thick with short legs, the lard pigs fatten up quickly and their meat has large amounts of fat in it. Lard-type pigs were used to produce lard, of course, which has a terrible modern reputation but is essential for perfect pie crusts, tamales, and biscuits. Lard was used as a mechanical lubricant before synthetics were available and was in such demand during World War II in the manufacture of explosives that consumers switched to vegetable oil to support the war effort. After the war, those vegetable oils were marketed as healthier fats, and lard's days were numbered. As a result, many of the lard-type pigs went out of fashion, and their breeds have become scarce. Bacon or meat pigs are lean and longer-bodied. They tend to grow more slowly than lard pigs and put on more muscle than fat. When lard-type pigs became passé, breeders turned to the leaner types to produce lean pork, and sadly, very little lard. That's why grocery store pork is so dry. Another good reason to hit your local farmer's market or mom-and-pop butcher shop. Bonus fact, for a mammal's meat to be kosher for Jewish people, it must have cloven hooves and chew its cud. Cows and goats make the cud, while pigs, who don't chew cud, are treif, or forbidden. In Islam, it's called haram. But the Quran does make an exception that Muslims may eat pork if they're faced with that or starvation. Pigs also get into our bodies by way of medicine. Pigs are important to medical research. Their anatomy and physiology closely resembles that of humans, making them excellent matches for research in many areas – cardiovascular, gastrointestinal, metabolic, liver, reproductive, infectious disease, and more. They've also helped researchers learn more about drug addiction and wound healing. The similarity means scientists achieve more relevant and significant findings than researching with other animals like rats or rabbits. Not only do pigs contribute to the development of medical technology, they're even organ donors. Only half of people are registered organ donors, and only about a third of people will die in such a way that leaves behind viable organs. This means a tragic number of people will die while waiting for transplants. Because demand outweighs supply, especially where it pertains to the heart with the increase of heart disease, researchers have looked to xenotransplantation, placing animal organs into human bodies. Xenotransplantation comes with many complications, so getting to the point of human trials has been difficult. In 2018, a breakthrough by researchers at the University of Munich brought us one step closer to the day where organ shortages are a thing of the past, by developing techniques that allow a baboon to survive significantly longer than ever before with transplanted pig hearts. Despite 25 years of attempts, the longest the baboons had survived after receiving a pig heart was 57 days. The new method, involving a modified transplant protocol 
and gene therapy to reduce immune reaction has allowed a baboon to survive for six months. Researchers also kept the waiting heart at a less cold temperature and intermittently pumped it with oxygenated blood-based solution containing nutrients and hormones. There were a number of problems to overcome, beyond the immune system attacking the new organ. Although pig hearts are very similar to human and primate hearts, they're much bigger and are prone to complications arising from interspecies hormonal and blood pressure differences. What's worse, the hearts might continue to grow to a size larger than the recipient's body can support. Although much more study is needed before researchers can begin xenotransplantation trials in humans, they are optimistic that it's on the horizon. You don't need to go as far as Munich to find terribly clever people. You need only look at our social media followers. You can follow us on Facebook and Instagram.com slash yourbrainonfacts, though I seem to be most active over at Twitter.com slash brainonfactspod. Extra big thanks this week to tags or retweets from Charles with a Hammer, The Most Stable Genius, Eric Parfait, Richard Enriquez, Alphabet Flight, Lie Hard with a Vengeance, Stories of Your and Yours, Augie Peterson, and Self, Hero of Tennessee. Word of mouth is still the best way for people to find podcasts, so that means it's the best way to help a podcast that you like. We podcasters used to be told that the best method for growing your podcast popularity was to get lots of reviews on Apple Podcasts. We found out this isn't true, but don't let that stop you. Leaving reviews for a podcast, it will just make the host's day. And we have two for the past week that I'd like to share. One from Henry in Los Angeles, who says, Absolutely awesome! Three exclamation points. I recommend this podcast to all my friends and family. Well-researched and well-told, this podcast rocks. All caps. Thanks, Henry. And from Jonathan Blade, who is also a podcaster and YouTuber, Moxie's YBOF is an ideal solo cast. It's scripted and polished with a wonderful hook in the format and presentation. I get to take a pleasant bite from the apple of knowledge several times a week with your brain on facts. I love that phrasing, Jonathan. A pleasant bite from the apple of knowledge. And if you'd like to hear your name and opinion read on the show, leave us a review on the Apple Podcast app or your podcast player of choice. And you can always submit a comment by going to yourbrainonfacts.com and going to the contact page at the bottom of the website. And please forgive me if you write in or leave a review and it doesn't get read onto the show. I do my best to keep track of them, but my brain is the equivalent of a space squirrel. In case you were somehow unfamiliar with the best-selling Charlotte's Web, it tells the story of a runt piglet named Wilbur who's protected from the butcher's block by the farmer's daughter, Fern, and a marketing-minded barn spider named Charlotte. And it's based, at least a little, in reality. Author E.B. White raised geese, sheep, and pigs on his farm in Maine. Though the pigs were destined for slaughter, White found himself caring for a sick little piggy, calling a vet for it and staying up with it all night. Picture the scene in Babe that culminated with James Cromwell breaking into song. Unfortunately, though, White's little pig didn't make it. Even though the pigs were destined to die, the death of this one bothered White more than he would have expected. Combine that with an experience White had in finding a spider egg sac in his barn, 
putting it in a box on his dresser and watching the new spiders with fascination, and you've got the makings of a classic. Coming seven years after the success of Stuart Little, Charlotte's Web was an immediate smash, selling 100,000 copies in 16 months. The book was a surprise to White's editor, who didn't even know he had a story in the works, when he dropped off the only extant copy in her office. To ensure nothing could happen to it, she sat down and read it on the spot. White also never explained to her his specific motivation for writing that particular book. I haven't told why I wrote the book, but I haven't told you why I sneeze either. A book is a sneeze. Bonus fact, if you've ever been in the middle of a writing assignment and had to refer to the strunk and white elements of style, it's the same white. Those who have only seen the 1973 animated institution starring W. Reynolds as the voice of Charlotte, but not read the book, may not know that Charlotte the Spider has a full name. While writing the book, White called the spider Charlotte Apira because he misidentified the spider in his barn as a gray cross spider, Apira sclopitaria. But he checked with the American Museum of Natural History and found out she was actually an Iranius cavaticus, the common barn spider. Thus, the spider was renamed Charlotte A. Cavatica. Some parents and teachers criticized the book for having a character die, even though the character was a spider, and Hollywood execs felt the same, wanting a happy ending for the movie. White held firm that Charlotte's death was essential to the story, and in the end, he won. The cartoon remained faithful to the book. Sure, it was sad, but I think it was a very death-positive representation of mortality. Charlotte also almost had a human face, because that's not terrifying. The book's illustrator tried to make her look like a woman, drawing her with a face like the Mona Lisa. Both the author and the publisher put the kibosh on that. Pigs are a bigger part of pop culture than you might think. I could do an entire series on fictitious porkers, but let's run down some rapid-fire facts. Miss Piggy's original name was Piggy Lee, a play on the singer Peggy Lee. Her rival for Kermit's affection in the early Muppet show was a younger pig named Annie Sue. Miss Piggy is also why the Muppet show was banned in Saudi Arabia. Like Winnie the Pooh, Piglet was based on a toy that the real-life Christopher Robin owned and first appeared in print in 1926, making him two years older than Mickey Mouse. Piglet says he has a great-grandfather named Trespasser Williams, which is why there's a sign that says Trespassers W in front of his house. Most likely, it used to read, Trespassers will be prosecuted. Classic TV swine star Arnold on Green Acres was the only member of the cast to win an acting award, in his case, a patsy, which is like an animal Oscar, which you can hear more about on episode 75, Never Work With Children or Animals, Part 1. Boy, this episode is getting self-referential. Arnold was not only played by multiple pigs, but most of them were female, because sows grow more slowly, so they have to be replaced less often. Everyone loves the winged horse Pegasus, but almost no one knows about his brother, the winged boar, Chrysor. Both are the offspring of Poseidon and Medusa, and appeared when Perseus beheaded Medusa. 
Chrysor doesn't appear much in any of the stories that survived, save for being referred to as a stout-hearted warrior whose name means he who bears a golden sword. Pumba means to be foolish or weak-minded in Swahili. While Timon's best bro is voiced by Ernie Sabella, the character is drawn as a female. Male warthogs have four protrusions or warts on the sides of their faces, while females only have two, which is how Pumba was drawn. Waddles the Pig on Gravity Falls was voiced by Neil deGrasse Tyson when he temporarily became a genius. Peppa Pig had an episode pulled after its initial airing in Australia after Peppa was shown befriending a spider. A parent wrote in to say that this was a bad idea considering the variety and severity of venomous spiders down under. A parent wrote in. Not even a number, a letter of the alphabet. On Dragon Ball Z, characters must collect seven Dragon Balls so the Dragon Shenlong can grant them a wish, usually bringing people back to life. <laughs> cough, Krillin, cough. Oolong, who looks basically like Porky Pig if he was dressed as Chairman Mao, once used a Dragon Ball wish to get his hands on some ladies' underpants. Babe was originally voiced by the actress who did Chucky Finster on Rugrats, but her salary demands for the sequel saw her replaced with the actress who voiced Tommy Pickles. Though James Cromwell was nominated for an Oscar, Farmer Hoggett only spoke 16 lines in the movie, the most famous of which is only three words long. Say it with me now. That'll do, pig. 48 piglets in succession and one animatronic played the role of Babe. There were nearly a thousand animals in the production all told. Sales of pork products dropped sharply after the movie came out, though the demand for pet pigs and breeding to meet said demand jumped. Cromwell himself even went back to vegetarianism. I would like to extend a warm welcome and sincere thanks to our newest patron, Jean St. Arnaud, or Arnold, I apologize for never getting the correct pronunciation of that. It is my habit to overpronounce things when the opportunity presents itself. Jean joins other supporters at patreon.com slash yourbrainonfacts, like Darren, Robin, and Crispy Platypus, in receiving stickers, the ability to vote on one episode topic a month, and bonus content, including the Patreon-exclusive podcast, Spot the Lie, for as little as $2 a month. Patreon.com slash yourbrainonfacts has helped me to upgrade my microphone, which you will hear next week. If you've ever wondered where I'm getting the facts for Your Brain on Facts, you can always visit the website at yourbrainonfacts.com and click Episodes to see the full script with a list of sources at the bottom. There's a bit of a hubbub in the podcasting world right now with a couple of true crime podcasts accused of plagiarism, and I want to keep things above board. You can find sources for every episode I've done, except maybe the first one or two from a year and a half ago. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. 
I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-off launches April 9th. Let Mysteries at Midnight be your destination for detective whodunits and captivating mystery stories. You'll hear classic stories like Sherlock Holmes, Agatha Christie's Poirot, and short tales from H.G. Wells, Charles Dickens, Edgar Allan Poe, and others. I'm Christopher, and I read these classic stories in the soothing style of a bedtime story, so you can listen to them in bed when you drift off to sleep. I also host the number one sleep podcast in the world called Sleep Cove, where millions drift off to meditations, hypnosis, and bedtime stories. We soon realised that listeners wanted to hear our mystery stories all in one place. So we created Mysteries at Midnight, where you can listen to all new tales every week. Search for Mysteries at Midnight on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or your favourite podcast app and follow and subscribe so you don't miss out on new episodes. So why don't you pick a story now and can you guess the twist? Interesting pig stories aren't just the province of fiction. They have remarkable footnotes in history, and if you're talking history, odds are good there's a war on. In December 1914, the British Royal Navy defeated the Imperial German Navy at the Battle of the Falkland Islands. The only German warship that managed to escape was the SMS Dresden. It fled south and reached the Chilean island of Masa Tierra. With Allied cruisers in hot pursuit and no chance of escape, the Germans scuttled or deliberately sank their own ship. While some British sailors began to round up the shipwrecked survivors, others climbed into smaller boats to look for salvageable goods. Among other items, they salvaged a dinghy, oars, a boat hook, buoys, six chairs, hammocks, brooms, fenders, quote, a cask of red wine undamaged by immersion in the sea, and one pig. The pig had been aboard the Dresden, but apparently got forgotten as the sailors abandoned ship. She managed to make her way topside, leapt into the water, and swam for all she was worth. A petty officer from the HMS Glasgow rescued the pig, and the crew used a winch to get her up onto the ship. Even though the pig was a sow, i.e. a lady pig, the British sailors christened her Tirpitz, after Admiral Alfred von Tirpitz, head of the German Navy, and facetiously awarded her the Iron Cross for being the last one to flee the sinking ship. Tirpitz lived a charmed life aboard the Glasgow for a while, before being moved to the Royal Navy's training facility in Portsmouth Harbor, where she lived with chickens and ducks and things. But Tirpitz wasn't cut out for early retirement. She made a right nuisance of herself, even breaking down the chicken runs to eat their food. Ten men wrestled her into a van, and she was returned to the captain of the Glasgow, though he was by then Commodore of the Royal Naval Air Service training establishment. 
He must not have known what to do with his twice-surprised pig, because he ordered her to be sold, with the proceeds going to the British Red Cross. It wasn't a terrible plan. Tirpitz's fame led to a final sale price of 400 guineas, or around $30,000 in today's money. We're not really sure what her life was like between then and her death in 1919 under the ownership of William Cavendish Bentick, 6th Duke of Portland. Just as the British Army did with the courageous and perforated pigeon Cher Ami, who you can hear about in episode 23, this podcast has gotten absolutely meta, Tirpitz was taxidermied. Her head, anyway, which was donated to the Imperial War Museum in London, where you can still see her today. Tirpitz doesn't have a monopoly on swimming swine. There are so many paddling piggies on big major K Island in the Bahamas that it's called Pig Island. The island is in Exuma, Bahamas. There are 365 islands in Exuma, and they're called the Kays. The nickname for this island has become more well-known than its actual name at this point. The two dozen or so pigs who live there are doing all right for themselves on an island devoid of full-time human residents who might otherwise care for them. There are no homes on the island, and the Bahamian government controls the flow of tourists to preserve the natural conditions. The pigs, like the island, have always been wild. You can visit the pigs on a guided day trip, but don't plan to stay over. There are no buildings of any kind on the island. But where did the pigs come from? No one knows for sure. Some speculate that people did once live on the island and had pigs as pets or livestock, or that these pigs are descendants of Spanish seafaring pigs who survived a shipwreck. Despite their mysterious origins and the lack of human inhabitants on the island, the pigs are really quite friendly, though some of that may be from associating visitors with free food. That being said, if you go to Pig Beach, please do not feed the pigs. They are used to a certain diet, the native plants they forage for, and throwing them Slim Jims and cruise ship buffet leftovers could really upset their stomachs. Plus, if they come to rely on humans too much for food, they won't forage properly on their own. Tourism to the islands have its upsides and downsides. While the pigs love the food and attention, knowing that tourists means food, the pigs have veered away from their habitat in the green vegetation of the forest and out onto the barren sandy beach, which isn't really sustainable for them. Not only is there no food there, but they're exposed to sunlight without shade. Sunburn is a real problem for pigs. It can get so bad that their skin begins to break down in a condition called greasy pig, for which my English-Irish-German-Czech self can absolutely sympathize. If you venture to neighboring Allen's Cay, you'll find a population of friendly iguanas. They're referred to as the Allen's Cay Iguanas, though their proper name is the Northern Bahamian Rock Iguana. These iguanas are exclusive to three islands in Exuma, of which Allen's Cay is the largest. You won't find them anywhere else in the world. Of all the social movements to be lost to history, one of the more interesting of modern times is the Youth International Party, or the Yippies. The Yippies were a theatrical, anarchistic adjunct of the free speech and anti-war protests of the 1960s. At the famously riotous 1968 Democratic National Convention in Chicago, the Yippies put forth their own nominee for president, 
chosen by counterculture icons Abby Hoffman and Jerry Rubin, a 145-pound or 66-kilogram hog named Pegasus the Immortal. His name was a play on the mythical winged horse, of course, but also a nod to the old When Pigs Fly saying. As themes go, a pig in politics isn't much of a stretch. Editorial cartoonists had pictured corrupt politicians and police officers as pigs since the earliest days of newspaper. The Yippies had come to Chicago to protest the escalating war in Vietnam and the failures of local, state, and federal government to racially integrate. According to the Yippies, They nominate a president and he eats the people. We nominate a president and the people can eat him. The plan was to run a pig, have some laughs, and show people how ineffectual the government could be. This may sound like a lark or just a prank, bro, but there was nothing levitous about the Chicago DNC, or 1968 in general. More than a hundred riots had taken place that year, and it was also the year that both Martin Luther King Jr. and Robert Kennedy had been assassinated. Anti-war protesters from all over the country converged on Chicago to find 12,000 police officers, 7,500 army troops, and 6,000 National Guardsmen waiting for them. Unfortunately, but not unexpectedly, Pegasus the Immortal's candidacy was short-lived. No sooner had Jerry Rubin begun the Yippies press conference than police swarmed in and arrested him, Hoffman, and six others, soon to be known as the Chicago Eight, for conspiring to incite violence and crossing state lines with the intent to riot. After a lengthy trial and multiple appeals, all charges were dismissed, though the only non-white Yippie to be arrested, Bobby Seale, was sentenced to four years for contempt of court. What wasn't important enough to go out on the wire service was the fate of the candidate, Pegasus. Sources vary as to what ultimately happened to the political porker. We know that Pegasus arrived at the convention in a station wagon with seven yippies and left it in a police paddy wagon. The Chicago Tribune reported that Pegasus was transported to the Anti-Cruelty Society, along with a sow called Mrs. Pegasus and a piglet, all collected from demonstrations around the time of the convention, and sent to live on a farm in Grays Lake, Illinois. Though the article did nothing to quash the persistent rumor that the Chicago Police Department cooked and ate Pegasus the Immortal. And that's where we run out of ideas, at least for today. Though I will circle back around to one of the first pigs that most of us ever lays eyes on, our piggy bank. A well-circulated story holds that the name comes from the word P-Y-G-G pig, a kind of orange clay. But it might also have come from the Scottish word piggin for a wooden or earthenware pail, or it could be related to prig, a dialectical term for a small pitcher. It could have been influenced by the animal the pig, because certain round items, like hot water bottles, were shaped kind of vaguely like and even referred to as pigs. The Scots also named their coin banks Pearly Pigs, P-I-R-L-Y, probably from the older Scots Pearl, P-Y-R-L, to thrust or poke, like the action of inserting a coin. What we do know is the first print ad for a pig-shaped bank ran in the Oregonian on 10th November 1900 and would set you back a whopping 25 cents. Thanks for spending part of your day with me.
The world is constantly changing and transforming. Cut through some of the noise with What's New with Wired, a podcast that goes in-depth on the latest news and technology and culture. Their award-winning journalism will help you make sense of what's happening in the world. Listen to What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts. That's What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts.